0: The Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season two provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us.
1: Welcome back to this week's episode of the Black Doctors podcast. This week, I'm privileged to be talking with Dr. Ed McDonald. He's a gastroenterologist, he's an academic clinician at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's good, good to talk to you as usual.
0: Uh, I miss having you around the university, man. Your presence is definitely missed,
1: mess, man. Yeah, I definitely uh, miss being up in Chi-Town. So let's, let's, let's get into it. Ed, what is a typical day like for you as a gastroenterologist? So
0: it it depends on the day. So first and foremost, my responsibilities are different than your typical gastroenterologist primarily because I'm a gastroenterologist who specializes not only in general gastroenterology, but also clinical nutrition, and I also uh, specialize in weight management. So I have three separate clinics. I do different types of endoscopy, uh, dealing with nutrition, with regular GI stuff, Um, but on any given day, I typically will have either full-day procedures or half-day procedures in a half-day clinic. And my clinics are going to vary depending on what type of clinic it is. So I have a half-day of general gastroenterology clinic where it's mostly you know diarrhea, constipation, bloating, abdominal pain, acid reflux, heartburn, et cetera, some Crohn's disease in there. Then my nutrition clinic, which is really a sick clinic. I mean, it's a population of people who are are, are very ill. So a lot of people who have malnutrition. I, I should call it a malnutrition clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are folks who can't eat the traditional way uh, because they're not absorbing because the line of their bowel is unhealthy for a variety of different reasons. Uh, that can be from Crohn's disease from, uh, in some of the the patients who've had bone marrow transplants, uh, graft versus host disease. I uh, have a lot of people who have cancer. So these are folks who uh, may even have end stage cancer where the cancer has a uh, cause a chronic small bowel obstruction so we have to give them IV nutrition um then i have a lot of patients unfortunately uh, been victim of uh, gunshot wounds and Mm -hmm. and, uh, gunshot trauma Uh, so they may have fistulas and other reasons where they can't eat the traditional way uh so i have to focus on them then there's people with anorexia and just severe malnutrition because of psychological issues Um, Then I have my obesity clinic, uh, which is the opposite. It's people really trying to (laughs) lose weight uh, as opposed to people trying to to gain weight. And during my procedure days, uh, my procedures could be just regular screening colonoscopies where... We're trying to uh, identify cancer and or prevent cancer by identifying polyps and removing them so they never have the opportunity to develop a cancer. And for your listeners who are not aware what a polyp is, that's a precancerous growth that over time can turn into cancer, but it is not exactly cancer. So you can remove it before it actually converts into a cancer. So I do those, then I may have procedures where we're putting in feeding tubes in the stomach or feeding tubes in the small intestine, or there are people whose esophagus may be uh, narrowed, and we have to use balloons to kind of open up the narrowing so people can eat eat again. Or I see a lot of people who've had uh, bariatric surgeries where they may have had some narrowing at the connection points where they've uh, had the surgeries and their bowel has been reconnected, and we have to use balloons to open up those areas. So it's a lot, of, a lot of complicated stuff. And then if you're on the inpatient service, you're seeing a lot of people who have internal bleeding. So these are mm-hmm. people who are bleeding from you know, ulcers, from blood vessels that can bleed inside the intestines or stomach or colon, or people who may have a, a tumor that's bleeding, and we have to figure out how to, to, to stop any potential sources of bleeding. So I feel like as a gastroenterologist, especially as someone who focuses on nutrition, we do a lot of complicated stuff and with the with our nutrition focus we also focus on small bowel diseases so most gastroenterologists don't deal with any procedures where they're getting deep into the small bowel so i'm one of the few people in the state of illinois that actually can do procedures where uh, we get deeper in the small bowel so that um, puts me in close relationships with a lot of surgeons so at university of chicago i work with a lot of um it, pretty much all the bariatric surgeons, and oftentimes, if someone has a small bowel tumor, they uh, may call me and have me just go up to the, the OR and help them identify where the tumor is. Wow. And you know, we'll do a procedure where I'm doing endoscopy and they're doing laparoscopy, and we're working together at the same time. Uh, and and it's you know, for me as a non-surgeon, being in the OR with surgeons while they're doing surgery <laughs> and me telling the surgeons what to do, it uh, it's a it's a good feeling, especially. <laughs> You know, having gone through medical school and been in the <laughs> OR, right. you know, you have everybody yelling at you when you're a medical student and you're trying to suture or cut the sutures and they're like, too short, too long. It's <laughs> payback. Uh, yeah, it's payback. And I tell people like, look, man, you know, do this, move your, you know, trocar this way. And like, I want you to do this. And it, it's good to, you, you know, for someone, I think one of the benefits or the beauty of being a gastroenterologist it's like we're one of the closest things to surgery that's not surgery. <laughs> yeah. So I, I still get, you know, uh, my taste for surgery satisfied uh, without actually having to live the rigorous lifestyle that sometimes can be associated with surgery.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. I definitely had no idea that that was all encompassed in the field of gastroenterology. So you practice in primarily an academic model. How would that differ from practicing in private practice as a gastroenterologist? Yeah. So, I mean, at University of Chicago, uh, one patient population,
0: it may be a little bit different. So at a tertiary care center like University of Chicago that has a particular focus on cancer, I I see a lot of cancer, Uh, a lot of it. And we're also a level one trauma center, so I'm going to see more gastrointestinal problems stemming from trauma, gunshots, uh, penetrating abdominal trauma, et cetera. So your average private practice gastroenterologist is probably not going to have that acuity of patients to some degree. Mm -hmm. So most private practice, and one, in private practice, you're not going to focus on nutrition. Uh, That's really just an academic thing for the most part. So, your private practice, they're pretty much just going to be doing general gastroenterology, which is mostly abdominal pain, maybe some Crohn's disease. And some of the private practice docs, uh, since they do general gastroenterology, they also function as hepatologists. Hmm. So, for me, I get to be a little bit more specialized. Uh, like, I'm still general because I want to keep my general skills up. But since we have academic hepatologists, like, I'm not treating hepatitis C and doing stuff like that whereas a private practice and gastroenterologist may have to do some of that
1: okay.
0: uh, with crohn's disease and some of the advanced inflammatory bowel disease we have inflammatory bowel disease specialists uh, so for a lot of those patients i don't necessarily have to be the one that's treating inflammatory bowel disease whereas a primary gastroenterologist in private practice they're kind of a jack of all trades and they're doing all the above when when people get really really sick That's when they start to send patients to a tertiary care center or academic center where
1: I work. Right. That's that's awesome. And since, you know, you could choose to work pretty much anywhere you want it with your skill set, but you've chosen to work at an academic hospital on the south side of Chicago. What does that patient population mean to you? Um, Why are you there? Great
0: question. So, one, I am a southsider. I was born in Chicago. I live on the south side. So working in the same neighborhood in which I live uh, has its own set of advantages. I mean, one, it makes for easy commute. So that's uh, less time (laughs) that I have to spend in the car and more time I can spend with the family or even I, I ride my bike to work. So, I mean, just the health benefits alone of just being able to ride your bike to work. Uh, is important. And I, I, I'm, I'm willing to stay here uh, for, for that alone. That's a, a reason that I would consider just definitely staying on the South Side. But ultimately, um, when I think about some of the reasons why I became a gastroenterologist, health disparities is one of them. And uh, we clearly know that there's health disparities when it comes to uh, both the incidence and mortality uh, related to colorectal cancer. So in Chicago specifically, uh, African-Americans in Chicago have, uh, two times, uh, the, the rate of death from colon cancer is two times higher in African-Americans than it is in, uh, non-Hispanic white people, uh, white
1: Chicagoans. Wow.
0: So. That is something that growing up in Chicago, like, I didn't necessarily know the epidemiology, but I knew people who had colon cancer. I mean, going to church, you hear about everyone's sick and sudden with colon cancer. So as a, you know, physician, knowing that epidemiology is not surprising. Like, you know, like I saw this growing up. Um, And since Chicago is a relatively segregated city, the majority of the African-American population is going to be on the south side and certain neighborhoods on the west side. Uh, so for me, being one of the few black male academic gastroenterologists in a city that has higher rates of black men having colon cancer, uh, being on the south side makes sense. Um, so I get to, to impact uh, my community. And I feel like on the south side of Chicago, University of Chicago, that gives me a, a better, it puts me in a better position to really be the impact that I want to
1: be. I think it's absolutely incredible, and thank you for your service. Thank you for the work that you're doing on the south side of Chicago. And it, 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 you know, people,
0: it, it means a lot. So, like when I go to the grocery store and I I go to Mariano's, mm-hmm. I'll just walk into the, the grocery store, even the Whole Foods over here on the south side. Yeah, and. When I walk in and just you know randomly see people that I've done colonoscopies on, and I just you know I'm just picking out vegetables, and people come up to me like, "Hey, Doctor McDonald, you could have did my colonoscopy." <laughs> <laughs> to to me that that means something. Or, you know, pre pandemic, if I go visit a church or something like that, and you know the pastor's just like, "Hey, Doctor McDonald walked in. He did my colonoscopy," <laughs> and the pastor will talk about, you know, why you need to get colon cancer screening. Uh, so I, I appreciate being in that position. Yeah. And if I was working, you know, in the suburbs somewhere um, where, you know, the population may not necessarily uh, really appreciate my importance and my value as a as a black male gastroenterologist, like, it wouldn't be the same. Right. But, but here... Um, you know, I feel like I'm needed and appreciated.
1: That's amazing. Um, and speaking on health disparities in the black community with colon cancer, obviously, uh, we just lost one of our greats, uh, in Chadwick Bozeman. and one of your posts really struck me cause you wrote two years ago, you wrote the article, six reasons why colon cancer doesn't exist in Wakanda. And, yeah. um, I mean, incorporating that into this message of public health um since then you know you've collaborated with other black gastroenterologists and other gastroenterologists uh dr Enkedia and dr gray as well to kind of raise awareness about this disease that's affecting the black community what would you tell the public and what would you have us tell our family and friends um, about colon cancer and, and what we need to do to avoid this uh this disease
0: yeah, so that's a, uh, it, it's a timely topic, and I, I feel like I'm still in mourning. I mean, I was a, a big fan of Chadwick Boseman. I mean, ever since I first saw him in the movie, 42, and his subsequent movies, he came out, it seemed like he came out with a profound movie almost like every year since Yeah, 42 came out. So he was, you know, pretty much uh, becoming my favorite actor, uh, and almost like, Instantly, when I saw him, like man, this guy is a there's something special about him. So when I saw that he passed away, it 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 hurt. Um, I mean, I've I've we've seen a lot of celebrities pass on, and you know, some their impact or their loss is more significant. I feel like he's one of those people where this loss is is particularly hurtful.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And and when I think about specifically with the black community. I, I mean, in the past 15 years, I feel like the two things that I think were most celebrated amongst Black people were Barack Obama's election yep. and when and when the movie Black Panther came out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like I've never seen you know folks go to the movie theaters dressed up in dashikis and stuff like it's, yeah, it's, we this. Yeah, we were there. I, yeah, like I've never seen it before. <laughs> Uh, so there, there there was something particularly special about him and that movie. So when the movie came out, uh, I wrote a post uh, about colon cancer. So it came out in March, uh, same month as colon Cancer Awareness uh, month, and I decided you, you know when you're doing community outreach and you're trying to to reach a community, you you, you have to sometimes think about, think outside the box in mm-hmm. terms of how do you make messages stick. Uh, How do you make messages resonate in a way that's different than just saying, you know, colon cancer, you know, has higher rates in this community and colon, you know, this is a colonoscopy. So I was trying to figure out a way to get creative, yet still effectively convey a message.
1: Right. And
0: I thought about using the movie that obviously was very popular as a way to convey that message. And, um, you know, at that time. I don't know if you remember. There was a hashtag like in Wakanda.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, or and everyone's doing Wakanda forever. But like in the in, in Wakanda hashtag, people were using Wakanda as almost a metaphor for this idyllic black life, utopia, black Id-
1: yeah.
0: a utopia. You know what I mean? It's this utopian vision, and in my mind. You know, if you think about utopia, like, health disparities would not exist in a utopia. Right. <laughs> and you take it a step further, it's just like, well, I don't think we would have as much colon cancer in Wakanda. Um, so, like, my hashtag, in Wakanda, there's not a whole lot of colon cancer.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and then I, you know, flush those ideas out. So. One of the reasons why I thought there wouldn't be a lot of colon cancer in Wakanda, and and I wrote this not knowing that the brother Chadwick had colon cancer as he made that movie. Uh, Like, he had colon cancer then. And I had no idea. Uh, Like, who would have thought? But in the spirit of the movie, uh, I thought there wouldn't be any colon cancer in Wakanda, uh, primarily because, one, people in Wakanda seem like they knew their family history. So if you look at Chadwick Boseman and Black Panther, I mean, they knew all the Panthers for generations.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: And 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 I feel like if one of the Black Panthers had colon cancer, somebody would have known that and people would have been screened appropriately. Uh, whereas in America... Uh, we may not necessarily be as forthcoming when it comes to uh, sharing our family history with our family members. Mm. Uh, a lot of times people can be very secretive and, you know, people aren't necessarily sharing their business or, you know, people aren't really talking about their colonoscopies with their brothers, sisters, or the parents may not be having the, that conversation with their, their children. And it is important because um, our family history can impact the age in which we should start having colon cancer screening. Um, and I feel like in Wakanda they would be they would have been aware of that, right? <laughs> and a, another reason why I thought there was less colon cancer in Wakanda compared to America is that in Wakanda it seemed like more they were mostly vegetarians. Um, so I, I think there was a scene uh, where uh, the quote unquote colonizer was uh, in the mountains, and they were like, "Are you going to eat me?" and uh, <laughs> And you made a joke, like, man, we're mostly vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we know that eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, specifically a diet that's high in fiber, typically has been associated with a decreased risk of colon cancer, whereas a diet rich in uh, red meat, and ultra processed meats and maybe even ultra processed processed foods can be associated with an increased risk in developing colon cancer. So I feel like the the average diet in Wakanda is probably going to be healthier than the average standard American diet that we have. Yeah. Uh, therefore, the risk for developing colon cancer in theory should be lower. So another reason uh, why colon cancer is going to be less in Wakanda is people exercise. So you look at the Dora <laughs> Milaje. I, I mean, look. Yeah. Th- everyone in Wakanda look like they have been, you know, either working out or living a lifestyle where there's just a lot of physical activity within their daily lifestyle. Like, I didn't see anyone who was markedly overweight in Wakanda. Uh, at least, you know, obviously this is Hollywood.
1: The Forrest Whitaker but, was a little chubby, but yeah, that's about it. Forrest
0: Whitaker, right, right, but, you know, he's been taking care of the plants. everything. <laughs> <laughs> Forrest Whitaker, he, he he played an older brother. Yeah, uh, and, and plus, Forrest Whit- Whitaker. So, Forrest Whitaker spent much of his time in America. <laughs> Touche. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, if anything, Forrest Whitaker probably would have been the the, the main culprit for for um, colon cancer, right. primarily because of the time he spent in America, uh, where he was exposed to the standard American diet. But there nonetheless, uh, in Wakanda, most people seem like they were in shape, uh, and we know that uh, having a maintaining a healthy body weight can be associated with decreased risk of developing colon cancer. Another reason why I thought colon cancer was going to be rare, less common in Wakanda is people weren't smoking. Like, I do not hmm. see anyone smoking in Wakanda. But, I mean, could you could you imagine? You know, there's a fight scene with Black Panther and somebody takes a cigarette break. Like, would makes it make sense? Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, and then plus, you know, in general in Africa, people don't smoke as many cigarettes as they do in other continents. Uh, so probably not going to have a whole lot of cigarettes in Wakanda. And plus, they were isolated from the Western world. Uh, so it's not like they're importing tobacco and whatnot. Um So we know that cigarettes can definitely increase the risk of not only colon cancer, but cancer in general and chronic disease in general. So that's one reason why there's less colon cancer in Wakanda. Uh, Other reasons, I I mean, uh, some of the obvious is that they embrace technology in Wakanda. Uh, so with healthcare in general in Wakanda, it seems like it's light years ahead of whatever we have in the United States, but what we do have in the United States, we have technology that can help decrease our risk of developing colon cancer. So as a gastroenterologist, I get to use a lot of the technology. I mean, I'm doing colonoscopies. I'm using fiber optic cameras to decrease the risk of developing colon cancer that I look inside of people. I mean, if... If you had, if you brought somebody from like 200 years in the past and brought them today and, you know, they would see what I'm doing with colonoscopies and everything, it would look like magic. Like, wait, wait, what is going on? Um, So I I feel like in Wakanda, the average person would embrace technology that exists to decrease their risk of illness. Now, in the United States, we're still trying to, you know, encourage people to embrace the technology that we do have. And, and I get the reasons why we have to encourage people to utilize that technology. I mean, one, there's uh, lack of access. So the technology that we have is not universally uh, accessible uh, for a lot of different reasons. Due to insurance, due to you know, financial reasons, uh, there's transportation stuff, and there's a lot of stuff. Then there's medical mistrust, uh, which I understand. I yeah. mean, uh, in communities of color. We have a the the history of medicine for communities of color in the United States. It is not the prettiest history, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Ter- have you read medical apartheid? Oh, yeah. It's bad. It is. It's sad stuff, man. So the the this the distrust and mistrust that exists. Um, there are a lot of reasonable reasons behind it. But we still have to take figure out ways to take advantage of what we do have. <laughs> um, so, like, these are obstacles that we're, we're dealing with in order to get people to, to utilize the technology that we have. But I felt like in Wakanda, you wouldn't have those obstacles.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, once again, thank you for, for all that you're doing. And you know, rest in peace to our, our brother Chadwick. But uh, it's great that the awareness that is coming out of this is, is definitely going to save lives yeah
0: yeah i mean if if there is any silver lining to a tragedy making people aware of colon cancer and getting people to to get screened. i mean even if, if even if it's just one person who you know we can prevent a cancer and that is uh, that's a step in the right direction that's that's turning a tragedy um and really just trying to not let the tragedy just exist, exist as a tragedy by itself. Like how we how do we utilize what happened to him in a way to prevent it from some happening to somebody else?
1: Absolutely. Oh man. On to I guess a, a more positive subject. How does it feel, Dr. McDonald, to be married to a celebrity? Uh
0: it feels good.
1: <laughs> for for those of you that don't know, um Doctor Every Woman is uh is married to to Ed. She is an obstetrician and gynecologist who also practices in the Chicagoland area, and she does a lot of meducation videos and parodies, gone viral multiple times. Um, So how does that work for the the two of you? You guys collaborate on projects? Yeah.
0: uh, So oftentimes, uh, I mean, I don't want to take any credit away from my wife, Uh, she, uh, what she does is amazing. And, you know, she may ask me to come up with some ideas periodically. And, uh, you know, I may say like, Hey, uh, since I have a background being a DJ and, you know, knowing hip hop and a lot of music and whatnot, like I may say like, look, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z song. And if I was doing a parody of this song, I would say something like this. I may throw out like one bar or one line and then she'll, Take it and do the rest, and that's that's only here and there. So I don't even want to take credit for <laughs> any of her songs, right? You know, I may try to come up with some ideas with her periodically, and then uh, depending on what she's trying to do, she'll have me do some of the recording and audio engineering. And if she wants to do an original song, kind of like you know, kind of like what you do, like I I have enough equipment and musical know-how to recreate certain songs. Yeah, so I'll do the production and do the beats and. You know, hop on the keys, the bass guitar, and the drum machine, and, you know, put everything together. <laughs>
1: there you go. You know, the ultimate power couple. It's, it, we have a busy household. And how, how has music influenced your career?
0: It, it has influenced my career a lot. So, I mean, once upon a time, I was an Albert
1: Schweitzer Fellow. And the
0: Albert Schweitzer Fellowship is a community service fellowship for community-oriented projects for health professionals. And the project that I had was actually using uh, music uh, as a way for health promotion. Hmm. Uh, so I did this as a, a medical student. What I did was, my goal was to train local hip-hop artists and spoken word poets as health educators. Really? Yeah. So um, I uh, recruited a bunch of poets and hip-hop artists that I had connections from my my years of DJing in the past. Uh, once upon a time, I was actually a pretty decent DJ. I still... <laughs> Got got some skills. Uh, I'm I'm rusty. I have not DJed in many years, but um, yeah. So what I was doing with that project, in order to find a venue to have my artists come in and do songs and whatnot, I actually had to DJ for free. So I, I told these places, I'm like, look, man, I'll be your free DJ if you just let me have people come in and you know do these performances, wow. and that was agreement. Um, so I would basically train different artists on a healthcare topic and they would take the information that they learned in my trainings and basically convert it into songs and then come in and actually do the performances. Wow. So I, matter of fact, you see people, people don't know the backstory. So my wife, uh, when she was a resident, she wasn't really doing any performances or doing anything. And she said she could write a poem on, uh, breast cancer and she wanted to perform it. And I'm like, why don't you come through and perform the song on breast cancer? And that was the first time she ever used any music or any poem or anything to actually educate someone.
1: Wow. Yeah. True story. It's it's crazy. I mean, music and and the arts really do connect everyone. And they're such a great medium for education.
0: Yeah. So for me, I I support her and uh, what what she does. And then. Occasionally, if I do, like, you know, my own little educational stuff on Instagram or, you know, social media, like, I put my own music to it. But ultimately, what I love about music, um, I I love it as a form of stress relief. You know, when I sit down at the piano or when I sit down on my drum machines, it's for me, it's almost a form of meditation. Like, I am literally not thinking about anything else. I can go to work and see people dealing with all types of horrendous conditions. I mean literally at work a lot of my time is spent with people who have been shot, people with metastatic cancer, people with, you know, severe illness that it's uh, you're really exposed to a lot of a lot of suffering so to speak. And I mean I like being the person to help people through the suffering, but it sometimes it's a lot of suffering that you you're exposed to yeah. and in order to keep yourself balanced you need to have some sort of healthy outlets. Uh, so for me, when I come home and play music and make my own music specifically, like I'm not thinking about anything uh, other than, you know, okay, if I, even if I'm just practicing scales, like I'm just, you know, let me just practice scales and I'm just, that's all I'm thinking about. If I'm, you know, making my own song, I'm, you know, just focusing on the chord progression. Yeah. So for me, when I start thinking about that, I'm not, I'm not thinking about anything, uh I'm just thinking about the music,
1: yeah and, in the zone in the
0: zone, and it, it again, it's like meditation, uh so a lot of meditation they tell you to clear your mind and just you know just kind of empty your thoughts and whatnot, and I feel like with music, it takes me to that zone where my mind is clear. <laughs>
1: Ed, can you take us through your, I guess, educational pedigree? You went to medical school at Northwestern. Um, just take it from there and, and let us know, you know, where you trained and, and gotcha. So first and foremost, I went to the university of Michigan for college. Uh, I, I would, <laughs> I would be remiss
0: if, if I did not mention the, the university of Michigan Gold blue. So that, that was, um, uh, you know, my, my foundation and uh, I love Michigan. Um, uh, uh, I, I love that college experience that I had. And I also had some good research opportunities and some mentors, uh, and met a lot of wonderful people who I'm, I'm friends with to this day. Uh, a lot of, a lot of Detroiters. So Detroit, great city, got nothing but love Detroit. Then I went to Northwestern for medical school. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I actually had, a, a full scholarship to go to Michigan for medical school wow. and, uh, but my parents got divorced uh, the year in which I graduated, and my mom had some uh, some health conditions. Um, so I I had to come back to Chicago. Uh, now, thankfully, I had options where I, I could just be like, well, I'm just going to go to Chicago for medical school. Uh, but I went to Northwestern, so I got accepted to Northwestern and went to Northwestern. Um, did my med school there, and uh, in between my third and fourth year of uh, medical school, I, I started to become interested in GI. And I actually took a year off of medical school and did a, a year at the NIH in basic science. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I was working in labs. To this day, I could do a, you know, immunohistochemistry and Western blots like, with, with the best of them. <laughs> I, I was at the NIH and uh, came back, finished up my fourth year of medical school and ended up matching. It's interesting. And so I actually had a terrible experience in my sub-I. So after finishing my year of basic science, basic science came back, and uh, I matched. Uh, my first rotation was my sub-eye, and the resident I was was with. She was like the worst person ever. Um, it was it was like you know one of those horror stories in medicine where oh, no she way. would actively
1: oh it was terrible.
0: I mean she would actively try to sabotage me and, and like lie to the attending and stuff like that. It was terrible. Uh, it got to the point where during my sub-eye, we didn't speak for the, like, the last four weeks. And this is like a six-week sub-I. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I was a good enough medical student where I can just be like, look, I saw this person, admitted them, orders in, just co-signed the bad boys. Done. <laughs> man. <laughs> um, so that, that, that was my sub-I experience. But uh, after that, I was like, man, I don't know if I want to do medicine. I'm going to apply ER. Um, so I hurriedly put together an ER application and I applied ER and medicine. Uh, it, it was like a, a big deal because, uh, the program director at Northwestern, she knew like, I was very vocal about how negative my experience was with this resident. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew that I was not going to be a gastroenterologist because this one negative
1: experience. Wow.
0: I ended up, uh, interviewing for both ER and medicine programs and, I had a relationship with the chief of GI at Northwestern. Uh, I did some research in his lab. For me, I knew I wanted to be a gastroenterologist if I became, if I went into medicine. I knew if I wasn't a gastroenterologist, I would rather just be an ER doctor. So I ranked Northwestern medicine number one, uh, which I felt that was my best chance in getting into gastroenterology. And the rest of my programs were all ER. Wow. So obviously I matched at Northwestern and did my residency there and had a, a great experience as a resident. So it, it's funny, like my sub experience had nothing to do what I, with what I actually experienced throughout residency. After finishing up at Northwestern, I knew I wanted to do gastroenterology. But at that time, I applied to gastroenterology as a third-year resident, If you applied at that time, you couldn't go straight into a fellowship. You had to have, like, wait a year before you could start your fellowship. So instead of doing a, um, you know, like a hospitalist year or, you know, doing research again, I decided to do a fellowship in nutrition. So I was already interested in nutrition. A lot of it was health disparities, but a lot of it also was I remember seeing super sick patients that had nutritional issues. Like, both of those reasons put me down a nutrition path. So, as a resident, I had a clinic at the Jesse Brown VA, and I remember uh, I would see brothers coming in with diabetes, high blood pressure, strokes, and everything. I would look over their chart and see, you know, all the residents who took care of them before me, all they did was just increase their blood pressure medications Hmm. or increase their insulin, but no one really asked them, like, what type of foods they were eating. And I remember seeing one guy in particular who was just eating hot dogs every single day, every meal. Hot dogs. Yeah. And, I mean, the brother had erectile dysfunction, just got divorced, and he couldn't really cook anything. He had diabetes. He had high blood pressure. uh, He was overweight, and he was just eating hot dogs. So I gave him some recipes. Uh, I I literally wrote down recipes on the back of, like, a a paper towel, you know, in the clinic. And I I had him roasting vegetables and stuff like that. And so he stopped doing the hot dogs. I see the guy maybe, like, three months later, and he lost a whole bunch of weight. His blood pressure was a little bit down. I'm like, man, what what are you eating? He's just like, man, I'm just doing uh, those roasted vegetables. Wow. Yeah. Did it fix his erectile dysfunction? It did. Like, uh, he he was not calling me in the middle of the night for Cialis and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was this idealistic, you know... Black intern, and I gave everybody my pager number and my cell phone number. I'm like, I want my patients to be able, to, patients to to reach out to me, to call me, and and get in contact with me. Mm-hmm. And look, man, like brothers were literally calling me in the middle of the night for Viagra and Seattle. Like, that. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I it is two in the morning, but I I get it. You, you're, you, if you're you're your your old lady, so to speak.
1: Right, right, uh, right.
0: So I saw the power that food had in his life, and, and simultaneously, when I was on my GI rotation, we had someone who had short bowel syndrome, and this person had—I mean, they were they were malnourished. They weighed like eighty pounds. They uh, were having bowel movements like twenty times a day. Their electrolytes were all messed up, and I remember being on rounds with one of the gastroenterologists at Northwestern, who's a very well-respected gastroenterologist. I mean, like one of the one of the best in the country. This guy um, was just like, you know what? I don't know what to do with this patient. I don't know anything about nutrition stuff. Next patient. Wow. And, I, I mean, this person is like on the verge of dying. And he was just like, next patient. And I'm like, man, I need to f- learn more nutrition. So what I did was to combine the the impact that I saw with giving people diets and recipes and also uh, the need for being more knowledgeable about clinical nutrition, I decided to do a fellowship in clinical nutrition at University of Chicago. And in the evenings, I went to culinary school. And since I'm not independently rich, I had to pay for culinary school out of pocket. Um, And I didn't want to take on any student loans. So on the weekends, I was moonlighting. Wow. Yeah. So I was working extra shifts in order to pay my my own tuition for culinary school. Um, So did that. Ended up Getting some publications that year. Did some oral presentations for research. Uh, I, I interned for the Food Network. I was uh, one of the chefs on the Sandwich King season three. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So if you if you go back and look at specifically that season, like I made all those sandwiches, man. Uh, the talent did not make those sandwiches. Those were my. <laughs> <sandwiches>. <laughs> how how was it behind the scenes on those shows? Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> It was absolutely terrible behind the scenes. Uh, because food stylists are I don't want to say food stylists universally are horrible people, but the food stylist I was working with was a horrible person. Oof. Uh whatever school that, that resident he gave me a hard time when I was a sub eye, they went to the same school of life. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to be a food stylist, you all you you ha, you have to be like O C D, but it's about the way food looks. Hmm. So it's one thing, if you're, like, a surgeon in the operating room and you're OCD about, you you know, you're doing, like, a heart transplant, you're OCD about the process of doing a heart transplant, like, I get it. Right. (laughs) Like, please be OCD about that. But if you're (laughs) OCD about me toasting a sandwich. (laughs) Oh, no. It it, it 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 becomes uh, it, it, an interesting conversation. So I, I remember, you know, the 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 food stylist specifically came up to me one time. She was like, Ed, so this next recipe, this is what we're doing, and then I want the sandwich. I want it to be GBD. I'm like GBD, and I, I'm a physician. Like I'm mm-hmm. like a board certified internist at this point. I'm like GBD. I'm over here thinking about like like wait <laughs> like gallbladder duck Like what are you like? What is GBD? Uh, what are you talking about? And she's like, I want it to be golden brown and delicious. Oh, and I'm like, like okay, come <laughs> on now, that's not that's not a thing. <laughs> That that's not a thing. So she was using acronyms. You you ever look in like the medical record and you see all these crazy acronyms that you right. know aren't like standard acronyms. Yep. But but like you just somebody just wrote it in there and just because they're trying to use shorthand, it's just like nobody knows your shorthand. Like this is not a standard acronym. So the, the food stylist, it was a lot of stuff like that. And I'm like, this is not standard communication. Um, if you wanted to be golden brown, just say golden brown. Don't say GBD. And then look at me like. <laughs> Like, why don't you know what GBD is? <laughs> so I make the sandwich, and it's, like, golden brown delicious. Uh, you know, next thing you know, she takes a bite out of my sandwich. and she's oh. like, the sandwich looks great. And she takes a bite, and I'm like, well, you know, it was for the camera. I don't, I'm don't like, maybe they want to have a half-bitten sandwich. I don't know what's going on. And she's like, Ed, what'd you do to the sandwich? The sandwich is so good. It's amazing. And next thing you know, she throws the sandwich on the wall.
1: What?
0: She was just like... I said golden, brown, and delicious. Like, you had delicious, you had golden, but it wasn't enough brown. Do it again. (laughs) And, and, you know, I I don't want to make it seem like we as physicians should deserve more respect than the average person in the world. Um, But as a human being... Like you don't treat people like that. Right. Like physician or not. And when she threw that sandwich, I'm just like, man, like this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Uh like I had to to swallow my pride and make another sandwich and go with the flow. Uh, but I realized, like being the the chef for, for television is not really what I'm trying to do in life. Mm. This is not. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Morrow, who, it was his show. See, Jeff Morrow's a nice guy, and uh, we, we still keep in contact to this day. Uh, but the food stylist behind the scenes, it was terrible. And, and and most people don't see the amount of work that goes on for, like, an actual TV show. So you see, you know, a TV show like The Sandwich King or Ina Garden, and you just see, like, you know, one person up there cooking some stuff. Like, what you don't see is there's a whole team of chefs. So the, the, the show was filmed at somebody's house. So they rented out the house. Mm-hmm. And we converted the garage into a makeshift kitchen. Um, so they had all these burners. And we put refrigerators and, like, everything you'd expect in a professional kitchen, we had it in the garage. So we're making all this stuff. Like, people don't see, like, all the lights and all the, you know, cameras involved in actually filming everything. And then uh, in between takes, you know, like we're cleaning stuff up nonstop to make the kitchen look spotless. It is it is a big ordeal. So there was probably maybe 100 people working on this one show, Wow! Uh, which is just, you know, you would think like, oh, just cooking. Like you just got one person cooking. There's literally 100 people. So it's a a big affair. Um, now, fast forward, I did all that, and ended up doing my gastroenterology fellowship at Rush. So I uh, finished gastroenterology, and uh, Northwestern needed someone to help out with nutrition. Rush needed somebody to help out with nutrition. But again, I wanted to come back to the South Side, and I ended up coming to work at University of Chicago. And that's where I am.
1: Awesome. Well, they're lucky to to have you down there um as as we wrap up you know what would you say to medical students that are looking at different career options possibilities they may or may not have experienced gastroenterology that may may not be on their radar what would you say to those students so gastroenterology is awesome
0: first and foremost (laughs) I, i i i love being a gastroenterologist i really do Uh, I think I would have liked being an ER doctor, but I definitely love being a gastroenterologist. And what I like about it is because um, I do a lot of different things. And... For medical students out there, I I think some of the major decisions you want to make is like, you know, do you want to work with kids? Do you want to work with, you know, men? Do you want to work with women? Do you want to work with both? Those are like, do you want to work with older people? You you know what I mean? Those are like big decisions you need to make. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you need to decide, well, do you just want to have a clinic-based practice or do you want to do procedures or do you want to do both? Um, so for me, when I went through my rotations, I was one of those people who kind of like liked a lot of stuff, but didn't really love anything, so to speak. Um, so I remember, you know, being on medicine, I didn't necessarily love being in medicine when I did surgery. Like I like surgery. I didn't love being an R. So my classmates ended up, you know, being surgeons, they mm-hmm. love that stuff. They're just, I just want to be in the OR all the time. That's all I want to do. And I'm like, well, you know, I like it for like the first hour. <laughs> <laughs> right (laughs) and then after a while it's like man this is kind of (laughs) long um and you know with ob-gyne like i liked it but i want to see more than just women with urology i liked it i want to see more than just men um and with gastroenterology i feel like it was the the perfect combination for someone who likes everything but didn't love one particular thing yeah and 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 what I mean by that is just like, look, I get to go to the OR still. Um, So for some people who are like, oh, you know, you're a medical student. This is your last time to be in the OR. Not true. Not for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I go to the OR. I work with the surgeons. Like, I get to see laparoscopy and whatnot. And... um, you know, I do. I do my own procedures. I'm a gastroenterologist. I'm, I'm doing stuff, and we're putting, you know, feeding tubes and certain stuff. Like I could suture if I want to. I can, you know, I, when we do our peg tubes, I gotta make an incision, <laughs> so that it, technically it's not surgery. But I, I have a scalpel <laughs> in <on> my hand. <laughs> yeah, close enough. <laughs> close enough. Uh, and you know, if somebody's bleeding, uh, like I can suture it up. Uh, It's fine. So I I feel like I'm using that skill set still. And I can still throw a one-handed knot as good as anybody. (laughs) That makes one of us. And I get to be in the clinic. Uh, So I, I like being able to talk to folks about high blood pressure and diabetes and whatnot. And with my obesity clinic, I get to do as much diabetes and high blood pressure as I want. So I'm still using that internal medicine hat. Um, and then same with my nutrition, uh, experience. Like it's a, when you're managing IV nutrition and whatnot, I'm seeing, I'm in the ICUs all the time. So I see, you know, critical illness. I get to work with the ICU doctors, um, and even with the peg tubes and the feeding tubes and whatnot, like the people who, a lot of people who need those are often critically ill. So the aspects that I liked about my internal medicine residency and the training, I still get to go to the ICU and still get to be involved in that whole critically critical care environment uh, i just don't have to do it all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> and with my gi clinic I, have, I like being in clinic i like talking to people about gastro- gastrointestinal problems and helping people feel better um get to do that um, i'd like my hemoc rotations as a as a resident i see a lot of people with cancer uh, but I don't necessarily have to be the person just, you know, giving out chemotherapy all the time. Right. Uh, I get to, you know, work in conjunction with the oncologist. I get to work in conjunction with the surgeons. And, uh, the, you know, the cardiologists, they're trying to, you know, send me a lot of the patients to help them lose weight. Uh, so hmm. I get to work with people undergoing cardiac rehab. So for me, in uh, what I do as a gastroenterologist, specifically as a gastroenterologist, gastroenterologist focused on nutrition, I get to experience uh, a wider breadth of medicine, but not enough where I get bored
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome and I also
0: get to work with great anesthesiologists like yourself <laughs> <laughs> there
1: we go and and hopefully we'll be working together uh soon in a couple of years i I look forward to it <laughs> one more thing,
0: I do teaching so at an academic institution. Uh, one of the benefits of being in academics and not being in private practice, which is not the wrong with private practice, but in academics, you potentially will have the opportunity to teach trainees at all different levels. Uh, so I get to be the person giving the lectures for the first and second year medical students. Okay. So University of Chicago, when people learn about diarrhea and you know malabsorption, and I even teach in the health disparities lecture, it's me giving those lectures. Um and I, and I like being that person, especially as a person of color, because when I was a medical student in Northwestern, like we didn't have I didn't see black male faculty. Right. <laughs> and I, I definitely, you know, didn't see any, you know, oh, uh, I didn't see black faculty f- for the most part and definitely not giving like hardcore lectures uh, about, you know, I do like the carbohydrates and the protein absorption lectures. So I'm all up in the physiology. Uh, so I I enjoy being that person. And I enjoy teaching the fellows, you know, how to do perform procedures, and uh, with our nutrition fellows, uh, like you know, I'm teaching the fellows TPN nutrition. They're coming into my obesity clinic, and you know, right now our nutrition fellow uh, is someone that you introduced me to. Oh yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah. So you told me at Rush they had a black fellow. Uh, And he was the last black fellow to come through uh, since I uh, finished the program in gastroenterology. (laughs) So you got us in contact. And this is where mentorship and reaching out, I mean, you you just never know where this stuff takes you. But you got us in contact, and I met with him. We would go out quarterly. I'd take him out to a restaurant or a bar. We'd get drinks and just kind of catch up, make sure the brother was doing well in fellowship. And I was really a um, kind of source he can confide in. Cause you know, training can be tough. Um, yeah. so, you know, sometimes you just need to have somebody you can bounce some ideas off of and just run some things by. So I tried to be that person because I wish I had somebody like that when I was going through training. Um, but in that process, he got interested in nutrition and I'm in <laughs> a position where I could be like, Oh, we'll make you our nutrition fellow. And he's my nutrition fellow. <laughs> oh, that,
1: I mean, I, when you, when I found out how that worked out, man, like that made my entire week. That made my month. Yeah. I mean, that was
0: you made that connection. Had it not been for you, I may not have crossed paths with him.
1: That's dope. Well, Ed, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for all the knowledge that you've shared. Where can the people find you? What are your socials? What are your... Um, uh, your blog posts websites all that yeah so uh, i have
0: my website uh Kitchen. Uh, you can find me on instagram at uh the Kitchen 4 and facebook the docks kitchen we have a podcast trying to live podcast that i do with uh, a couple of buddies so you can check it out and so check us out there i need to probably do some more episodes but it's, it it's hard being a podcaster man <laughs> yeah, yeah tell me about it like like people don't know the editing and all that stuff it takes time yeah (laughs) yeah that is a a work in progress so i got some you know other stuff growing and you can check my wife out at dr everyone
1: ed uh thank you so much and uh we'll we'll keep an eye on on what you're doing down there on the south side of chicago appreciate that man
0: the black doctors podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.